Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, uh, it is 2022 now, and I hope that your 2022 is going good so far. Uh, if you're like me, it's already a mixed bag <laughs> of good and, and not so good stuff that's going on. It, it happens. Um, but, you know, I, I, this thought occurred to me this week or this question of why is New Year's such a big deal? I mean, there are parties thrown throughout the world. I, I'm trying to think about it. It might be Christmas maybe, but Christmas and New Year's are like the only global celebrations. And the question is, why is it that New Year's is such a big deal? I mean, in some ways, it's just a single tick of a clock going from a Friday to a Saturday, going from December to January. Why is it that New Year's Eve, there's all these parties, New Year's Day, everybody takes off. Why is it that New Year's is such a big deal to people? Well, I, I Googled that question and I, I looked up several different websites and these are some of the things that they said. A Psychology Today article said, New Year's Day provides us the chance to celebrate having made it through another 365 days, right? Whew, we survived that. And it says the unique tick of the clock has always prompted us to reflect, look back, take stock, assess how we did and resolve to do better. Another website said we celebrate New Year's because it represents a new beginning with new goals and dreams. Another website said the new year is all about fresh starts, new beginnings, and looking towards the future in hopeful optimism. New Year's Eve can signify the start of something new and great in your life. If you're here today, uh, I'm guessing some of you have created New Year's resolutions, um, Maybe you have verbalized them. Maybe you haven't verbalized them. Areas that you want to grow in, change in. Maybe it is your, your eating, your, your health. Uh, maybe it is your spiritual devotion to come to church more, to read the Bible more, to pray more. Maybe it's to put some of those pesky sins away. Um, but but we, we have these, these things of New Year's resolutions uh, because we know that in the previous year, we were not all that we were supposed to be. And we hope that we can become more of who we're supposed to be. And so even as we celebrate the New Year's, it's, it's, it's also a new beginning in which we are taking the sad parts of our story from the old year and kind of grieving it and leaving behind and hoping and praying for a better story, a new story in 2022. You know, in today's passage, uh, we are going to learn about the new beginning of all new beginnings. As we dive into the gospel of Mark, it actually starts with these words, the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you are in need of a new beginning in any way, shape or form, and I'm pretty sure all of us are, 
this passage is for you. So if you would, please open up to Mark chapter 1. We will be looking at verses 1 through 13 today. Uh, Before we dig in, I want to give you a little bit of the background information about the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is written by a guy named John Mark. John Mark was not an apostle of Jesus, uh, but he has written down the eyewitness testimony of an apostle, the apostle Peter, and that's what we have here in this gospel. Uh, The gospel of Mark is most likely written to Gentiles, which means to non-Jewish people, especially Romans, even directed kind of towards Rome, which becomes very interesting as we go throughout Uh, even today's passage. One of the unique things about the Gospel of Mark is that it mostly focuses on Jesus's actions, his works, his miracles, and not so much on the teachings of Jesus. Although there are some in there, it is mostly focused on the works of Jesus. The Gospel of Mark is uh, 16 chapters long, and it is split almost exactly uh, in half. Um, You'll see here on the map, the first half, which is what we're hoping to cover over the next five months, the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark, mostly focus on Jesus's ministry up in Galilee. And then the second half of the Gospel of Mark moves down towards Judea and Jerusalem and the cross and focuses in on that ministry. So we're going to be focusing mostly on his ministry up in Galilee. The other thing uh, that you may notice about the Gospel of Mark that is unique, that it is very fast-paced. It is very urgent. Even in some of the stories we'll read today, you'll be like, man, that just spent two verses on something that other Gospels spent a whole lot of time on. Um, But there is an urgency to this. And so over 40 times in the Gospel, he says immediately or at once. And so so there's this urgency, almost like this, this tornado or destruction is coming, and he's trying to get the message out. Okay? And so that's, that's some of the uniqueness of the gospel of Mark that I think are helpful to know as we enter into this story. So let's look, uh, let's look at this new beginning uh, here in Mark chapter 1. Again, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13 today. This is the word of the Lord. Mark 1 verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came up from Nazareth, uh, came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. 
Lord God, in our hearts and our souls, we long for new beginnings in so many ways. Because in so many ways, we know that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Our relationships are not the way they're supposed to be. We're not the way we're supposed to be. And so God, pray that through your word today, you would do this new thing. Give us a new beginning that we would have a new freshness and zeal and joy in you, that we would follow you this year more than any year we had prior. Help us by the grace of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we go into the outline, I briefly want to look at verse 1, because verse 1 is really kind of a summary of the entire gospel of Mark. And it's so pregnant with so much meaning in it. I mean, we could do a whole sermon on verse one. Um, But it starts by saying the beginning, okay? If you're familiar with the Bible, you probably uh, remember this being said someplace else, being at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1.1. In Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you're familiar with your Bible, you know that this perfect God created a perfect universe with perfect human beings. Everything was happy. Everything was holy. But then sin came into the world through the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And and the the decay and the the corruption of that first sin uh, bled over all of creation, over all of humanity. And so now creation is fallen. Humans are fallen. Our relationship with one another is fallen. And most of our relationship with God is fallen. And so it's into that context that Mark 1 once proclaims that there is something new happening. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what is, what is new here? What is this the beginning of? Well, verse 1 again says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. This word gospel in the original Greek is euagelion, and it is a term that theologians talk about quite a bit, but eu means good, and agelion means announcement, and so this literally means good news, okay? This is the good news of Jesus. Now, this word euagelion is not exclusive to Christianity. It was used within the Roman Empire of the time to proclaim a good news that a Caesar had been born or that a Caesar had taken his throne, But here it is used to proclaim the good news of this man, Jesus. And what is the good news of this man, Jesus? Well, we get hints of this good news through the titles given to him in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, His name is not Jesus H. Christ. That's not his name, okay? Christ is a title given to him that means Messiah or anointed one. He is the long-awaited one, an expected one that is promised throughout the Old Testament. And so what we see here in this early, uh, in in this first verse of this chapter, is that Mark is claiming that he does not just have a gospel, but that he has the gospel of good news. And the gospel of good news is the good news about Jesus Christ. And he is sharing this with us with great urgency because he knows that we are people in need of good news. Because we are in people need of new beginnings. And so how does the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begin? 
uh, how does it begin in the gospel of Mark, but also how does it begin even in our own hearts and souls? Well, it begins with preparation. Look at verse two with me. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. This quotation comes from the book of Isaiah, from Isaiah the prophet. The context of this uh, quote is that Israel has rebelled against God, and so they have been exiled out of the promised land, and they're in foreign territories, a dispersed people, and God comes to them to comfort them and encourage them that God has not given up on them. Even with all of their sin, even with all their rebellion, even with all their disbursement, God has not given up on them. And so he promises In Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 5, and it should be on the screen here, a voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Notice it doesn't say for an angel, for a teacher. He says, make highway for our God. Verse 4 continues, says, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain will be made low, and uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." What does it mean, (laughs) what does it mean practically uh, to make straight a highway for the Lord? To, to fill the valleys and to bring down the mountains. Well, in those days, if Caesar was coming to down, many times what they would do is they would get the city ready. And one of the ways that they would get the city ready is by making the highways better. Uh, they would they, they, they'd take the dips and lift them up, fill them in. They'd bring down the mountains. They'd have new roads, nice roads to bring the Caesar into town. And so that's kind of the illustration that is be, being used here. Uh, we do something similar even in our own context. I remember when I was in seminary, I was driving driving down Highway 70, which goes by Lambert Airport uh, in St. Louis. And as I was driving towards Lambert Airport, uh, there was traffic going both directions, just like normal, a lot of traffic. And all of a sudden, the traffic on the other side of the road just stopped. At, At first, I just thought it was a gap in the traffic, but then I was driving miles and miles, and there was no traffic. And then I got off the highway, and I never knew what happened. I was afraid maybe there was a horrible accident. Well, later that night on the news, I found out that the president had come to town. And because the president had come to town, they, 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 uh, they guarded off all the entrances to the highway to make straight his pathway to wherever he was going to speak from the airport to the event center that he was going to. What does it mean for you and me? What does it mean for the people in John's day to make straight a highway for the Lord? Does it mean building roads? No. <laughs> does it mean you know, filling in valleys and bringing down, it doesn't mean that at all. You see, the way that we make straight the way for the Lord has nothing to do with our physical surrounding. It has everything to do with our heart. And that's what we see here as John, as it continues here in verse four. This is how we make a straight highway for the Lord. Verse four, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan in the Gnosis, confessing their sins. 
And so how did people in Judea in that day prepare to receive Jesus? Well, it's the same way that we are called to prepare to receive Jesus today. It is through confessing our sin, repenting of our sin, and making a straight path for Jesus to come into our heart, into our souls, and into our lives. Repentance is what makes the path straight. Let me give you a human example of this. I was talking to a friend this week, and he has, uh, he has several children by several different women. Um, and when he had children with these women, he was uh, not a good dad. He wasn't a good father figure. He wasn't good to the women. Um, well, a couple years ago, he became a Christian. Uh, he came to faith in Christ. And he was overwhelmed by his sin. He confessed it to God. He repented of it. He received the forgiveness of God in his life. But then he went to each of his children and his children's moms, and he went to them and repented to them. He confessed his sin. He said, please forgive me for this. Some of the moms were skeptical and didn't do it. That's on them, not on him. But others of the moms did. And even though there was prior to this, all of this friction, all of this bitterness, all of this anger, repentance made a straight way for the reconciliation of their relationship. It's the same way with God. We have sinned against a holy God. We have worshiped other idols. We are, we are spiritual adulterers. And the only way that we can prepare the way for the Lord to come into our lives and change our life and transform our life and do a new thing in our life is if we start with confessing our sin, with owning our sin, with repenting of our sin. You see, while this man that I talked about, some of his wives forgave him, some of him didn't, what we find out is that God is never stingy with his forgiveness when we confess our sin. First John 1 says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You're fooling yourself if you think you're not sinful. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so if you want to have a new beginning with God, have a relationship with God for the very first time, or if you want to have newness in a part of your life that you know is not the way it's supposed to be, the way that you start, the way that you prepare is by confession and repentance to make straight the path for the grace and mercy and love and person of Jesus in your heart. That is the beginning of the gospel for us, the beginning of the preparation for the gospel of Jesus. The second thing here, the second beginning we have here is the proclamations about Jesus. Look at verse six with me. It says, now John was clothed with camel's hair and, a wore, and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. Uh, if you notice here, he wasn't wearing like a shirt that looked like camel's hair. He was actually wearing camel's hair. Um, and, and that was just as weird then as it is now. That's why it's pointed out here amongst other reasons. It's really weird to wear, I, I mean, I would love to see that, but weird to wear a shirt of camel's uh, hair, okay? Uh, he also had a leather belt, which is not so weird now. I don't know if it was weird then. But the reason why uh, John Mark points this out is because this actually proclaims something about John as well as it proclaims something about the person who comes after John. Uh, in 2 Kings 1.8, which is about 900 years before John the Baptist, Elijah the prophet, who was probably the most popular prophet uh, in, in the New Testament time, um, 
he, he was described as one who, quote, wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather around his waist. And so here comes John, and he is wearing the wardrobe of Elijah. And the reason why this is so significant is because in the last book of the Old Testament, in Malachi, uh, before 400, of, 400 years of silence, before 400 years of God not prophesying or speaking to his people through his word, uh, before 400 years of silence, the second to last verse uh, of the Old Testament, before this 400 years of silence, says this. It's Malachi 4, 5. It says, Behold, this is the Lord speaking, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so this is, this is how this Old Testament ends before the silence is saying, I am promising you that I will send you an Elijah. I'll send you an Elijah who will prepare you for the Lord, who will prepare you for the coming of the Lord. And so John's clothing, John's clothing proclaims that he is the Elijah, but it also proclaims that the one who comes after him is the Lord. Think of it this way, if you were in the atrium this morning just kind of hanging out and you saw uh, someone come through the front door who had a suit on and was well built and had sunglasses on and, and an earpiece in and was holding it like this and talking, you know, into the air, um, you would maybe think, oh man, this is like secret service. This is a bodyguard. This dude is a, is a big deal. But what it would tell you also is that he's not the biggest deal. The biggest deal is the one who's coming after him, right? He's the one that, that, that they're protecting. And so, so in the same way, John's clothing gives off this, this fact of, of John's identity as the Elijah, but it also points to the one who's coming after him is someone even greater. Jesus' identity is further confirmed by John's verbal proclamation. Verse 7 says, And he, talking about John the Baptist, preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So John the Baptist was a pretty big deal. Uh, everyone in the region around had heard about John the Baptist. The, the, the religious leaders were talking about John the Baptist. People were traveling uh, hundreds of miles to come and see John the Baptist in the wilderness. I mean, he was a really big deal. Maybe like you could think of a Billy Graham, right? He was, he was a huge deal. Everybody knew about him. Furthermore, Jesus says about John the Baptist, he says this, he says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. I mean, for Jesus to say this about someone is a pretty big deal. He's saying, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist is as big of a deal as it comes. And yet John the Baptist says that the one who is coming after him is one whose sandals he's not worthy to stoop down and untie. You see, the, the job of those who would welcome in guests and, and stoop down and untie sandals and, and wash feet, uh, that was for slaves. Matter of fact, the, the lowest slave. I mean, if you could imagine walking around in sandals in, in a community that doesn't have, you know, uh, modern plumbing, it's nasty. And, and so it was the lowest of the low slaves that would come and wash their feet. And John says, I'm not even worthy of that. As big of a deal as John was, he was not even worthy to untie the straps of the sandals of the one who was to come. To put it in today's language, I mean, if you can imagine this, this would be like Joe Biden or Donald Trump or, or Putin saying, you know what, there's, there's someone coming who I'm unworthy even to scrub his toilet. That's essentially what's being said here. 
John's proclamation of the glory of Christ continues in verse 8. He says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Again, this is an extraordinary declaration from John. Because in the Old Testament, the only one who could impart the Holy Spirit was God himself. And so John is speaking of the divinity of the one who is to come. He is saying that he is God. Furthermore, John confesses that as important as his baptism is, it's not nearly as important as Jesus' baptism. John's baptism was temporary and and external, but Jesus' baptism would be internal and forever. John's baptism was with water, but Jesus' baptism would be with the Holy Spirit. And so John the Baptist is the greatest man to ever live, according to Jesus, makes these two verbal proclamations that he is not worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus, to be a slave, and he is, and that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. As great as these proclamations are, from John's mouth, from John's clothing, there's yet even a greater proclamation about Jesus. And it happens at his baptism. Look at verse nine with me. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. This would have been the inauguration of his public ministry, kind of a commissioning or ordination of sorts. You can think of it that way. Verse 10 continues, says, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And then here's the proclamation. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Could you imagine being on the rocky banks of the Jordan, seeing Jesus come out of the water, and then this voice, uh, first heaven being torn open, whatever that means, heaven being torn open and this voice speaking and saying, this is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. You know, there's only two times in the gospels that God speaks from heaven. One is right here at Jesus' baptism. Another is at Jesus' transfiguration. And do you know what God says at Jesus' transfiguration? He says, this is my son with who I am well pleased. And then he says, listen to him, which is always a good idea. But this is what God the Father wants to communicate to the world, that Jesus is his son, his beloved son with whom he is pleased. You know, one of my favorite things about the book of Mark is this phrase, son of God, and how it's used throughout the gospel of Mark. You saw it in verse one there. The narrator calls Jesus the son of God. You see it here in the baptism, God the father calls Jesus God the son. The only other people that you see calling Jesus the son of God throughout the rest of the gospel of Mark up to the end of chapter 15 are demons. That's it. And so the narrator calls Jesus the son of God. The father calls Jesus the son of God. And then you have demons calling Jesus the son of God because they know who he is. And he shuts them up and tells them to move on. Who does not claim Jesus as the son of God is the apostles, his disciples, his followers. But then at the end of Mark, Mark chapter 15, when Jesus dies upon the cross, it says that the centurion Roman pagan guard who stood there to watch him die said, surely this must be the son of God. I know that son of God has probably lost some of its shock value for us today, but for a Jew to think about an invisible uh, God having a bodily son was unthinkable. 
And yet this is what John is trying to prove, that Mark, John Mark, that Jesus is the son of God, that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. And so here's the thing. When we come to this gospel of Jesus, when we think about who Jesus is, there's a lot at stake. Because if Jesus is just a good teacher, a good guy, a moral example, then he's not savior, then he's not Messiah, then he's not the Christ. But here we have this triple proclamation from the wardrobe of John that says John is Elijah and Jesus is the Lord himself. From John's lips where he says that Jesus is greater than him, that he's not even worthy on his sandals and that he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then finally, a proclamation from God the Father above who says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the proclamation of who Jesus is. Finally, we have the provenness of Jesus. Look at verse 12 with me. <clears throat> and it's so funny how, how little time Mark spends on, on this episode. But verse 12, he says, the spirit immediately drove him, that's Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. <clears throat> Notice here, the reason why Jesus was out in the wilderness was not because he got lost or because his GPS was messed up. He was out in the wilderness because the Holy Spirit forced him into the wilderness. It says immediately after his baptism, he was forced out into the wilderness. <clears throat> and so after Jesus is commissioned for public ministry, he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. And the question is why? And I think there are two reasons. There's probably more. But the two reasons that I picked up on, uh, the first is this, is that going out into the wilderness for 40 days for a time of fasting and prayer is a time of communing with God in a special and intentional way. For example, Moses uh, uh, went to Mount Sinai for 40 days and nights where he communed with God and received the Ten Commandments. Elijah was led for 40 days and nights to Mount Horeb where he communed with the Lord and heard from the Lord. And so I think this was part of the preparation of Jesus for ministry was to have this spiritual retreat and commune with God in a more intimate and intentional way. But the other reason, and I think the more important reason why the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days was to prove that Jesus is who all of these proclamations says he is. To prove that Jesus is faithful and ready to accomplish his mission. Again, the wilderness and the, the number 40 are so symbolic for the people of God. But, but when Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days, do you remember what the people of God did in the wilderness? They rebelled against God. They created a golden calf to worship. And then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, grumbling and complaining and sinning like crazy. You see, the wilderness is a place of testing and of trial. And throughout the Old Testament, the people of God failed miserably. But here, Jesus doesn't. Here, Jesus is faithful. Here, Jesus is victorious. You see, when Jesus went to the wilderness, it wasn't easy. I know, I know we might think, oh, you know, wilderness was easy for Jesus because he's Jesus, right? But Jesus was 100% man like you and me. And so he had the same wants and needs. I mean, could you imagine 40 days not eating any food, 40 days not drinking any water, 40 days being harassed by wild animals, 40 days 
being tempted by Satan. And yet for 40 days, Jesus did not crumble. For 40 days, Jesus proved himself to be the faithful one of Israel. And so as this gospel begins and we wonder how can we trust Jesus with our whole life, this story, as well as many to come, tells us that Jesus has proven himself to be faithful and to be a sure foundation for our whole life. Yesterday, um, for New Year's Day, my family decided to go ice skating. And uh, the, the, the parks around here don't yet have the ice filled in, and so we were kind of searching for a place to go. And my daughter saw this retention pond, uh, and she knew that some people had skated on it before, so we decided to go there. And so we get to the place, and we walk down to the retention pond, which is a little bit of a hike, and we get down there, and we look, and certainly there's, or there's an area shoveled off for ice skating, but we don't know how long it had been shoveled off, and the kids were kind of leery of it. I was too. And so they were like, uh, is that going to break? Are we going to fall through? And I said, well, I'll tell you what, here's what I'll do. Um, I will go out there uh, with my 150 pounds of weight, and I will prove to you I will prove to you that it is strong enough, okay? And so I go out on the ice walking very delicately, and there's some parts where you can see straight through, and it's like, that's kind of creepy. But I still walked there, and I just made sure, and I started jumping up and down on it, and I started banging a hockey stick on it. And the reason was to prove, to prove that it was strong enough, to prove that it could hold them up. In many ways, in the wilderness, Jesus went through many temptations, many trials, And through that, he proved to the people of God that he can accomplish his purpose, that he can accomplish our salvation, that he can give us a new beginning, and that he is a firm foundation that we can rest ourselves entirely upon. Friends, if you are here today and you are just dying for a new beginning, you're just dying for a new beginning with God, a dying for part of your life to have a new beginning. We are assured by this, that Jesus has proven himself, that he is faithful and that we can depend on him. And that those who prepare their hearts by confessing their sin and repenting, those who proclaim Jesus Christ to be the son of God, their Lord and savior, for those who rest upon the proven faithfulness of Christ for their salvation, Jesus has created for you a new beginning. And you see, the reason why we can have a new beginning is because Jesus took our ending. Let me say that again. We can have a new beginning because Jesus took your ending. You see, what our sin deserves is the punishment, the wrath of God. It deserves death. It deserves hell. That's what our sin deserves. That's what our ending should be. But when Christ went to the cross, he took our ending upon himself taking on our sin, paying for our sin, dying for our sin, going through the hell of God's punishment for our sin. He took on our ending so that we could have a new beginning and a new ending for all eternity. And so let me ask you today, what do you believe about this man, Jesus? Do you believe him to be the Christ, the son of God, the savior of the world? If so, he offers to you this new beginning in him. You know, I'll end with this. As you prepare for 2022, my hope in prayer 
is that through the gospel of Mark and through just our communion with one another and with the Lord, that there would be many new beginnings, that, that, that Christ in us would create new fervor for him, new passion for him, new love for him, and that that would, that would flow out of us in new ways to the people who are around us. You know, New Year's resolutions don't last long. I saw a cartoon this week where one kid said to another kid, hey, what's a New Year's resolution? And another one said, a New Year's resolution is a to-do, week for, uh, is a to-do list for the first week of the year, right? Because we don't carry it much further than that. And so if you want a new beginning, quit turning to yourself because it doesn't work. Turn to Christ because he has and is and will be making all things new again. Let's pray. Lord God, we know there are ways in us that are not the way they should be. And we have often tried by our own effort and energy to turn those things around and we have failed time and time again. And so God, by the power of your spirit that dwells within us, God, pray that you would turn our hearts to you to confess our sin, to repent of our sin, and then to trust you as our Christ, as our Savior, as our Redeemer, as our Restorer of broken things. Let us rest in you and be changed and transformed by you to be more and more conformed into the image of Jesus. Lord, as we turn to your table, we're reminded that our beginning comes because of your ending, because you took on our ending, because you took what we deserve. And yet you did it so that we could be nourished through this body and blood spiritually as we receive it by faith, Lord. And so let us be nourished for the new beginnings that you have in our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.